0: focused on talking about water sustainability issues in Colorado. This is Nicole. And Rita. Today we're talking with Mark Easter from Save the Pooder. Thank you for joining us today, Mark.
1: Hi, Nicole. Hi, Rita.
0: So Mark, can you start by telling us
2: about Save the Pooder and your role in the organization?
1: Save the Pooder uh, started off originally as an ad hoc group of people from the community who were concerned about proposals to dam and divert water out of the Cache La River. That group of people started meeting in 2004. They formed a group called the Sustainable Water Issues Group, or SWIG. And uh, the, what we we're really trying to do was understand all the different proposals that were out there to take additional water out of the Poudre River. It was already one of the most altered ecosystems on the Front Range. There's over two dozen dams and diversions operating on the river at that time, and more than 60% of the water that was native to the river was diverted from the river before it got to Fort Collins at the same time the hydrology of the river was extremely altered the june rise was very different from what it was in historic years and oftentimes the river would run completely dry during the winter time which was that was just something that had never happened during the you know tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of years that, of the river's evolution so we were pretty concerned about that the main project that was being proposed was the Northern Integrated Supply Project it's or NISP it's the largest of several diversion projects that are proposed for the river. We were concerned that the communities who were proposing this project were not doing enough water conservation. They were not doing enough to uh, avoid having to build another uh, project to divert water out of the Cachaputa River. That there were other things that they could be doing to reduce their water use needs on a per capita basis and other sorts of things so that the project wouldn't be necessary. So we formed uh, the organization Save the Pooter in 2008 as a direct response to the threats that NISP posed for the Cash Poudre River.
0: So Mark, why does it matter how much water is in the pooter?
1: That is a great question. Why does it matter? Well, there's sort of two things that the river has organized around. So you have to think about what the climate of the Rocky Mountain ecosystem is. Uh, we get a lot of snowfall in the wintertime and that snowfall melts off pretty much every year. It's a vast reservoir of water. So when you look at the, the water that's in the Poudre River at any given time of year, it depends on where you are in the snow melt cycle. So in the wintertime, when temperatures are cold, there's not much snow melting off the high country generally. Um, you might have flows that are coming down the river historically that are maybe calf deep. They've been measured at somewhere around 50 cubic feet per second. Now if you translate that into peak runoff, what we call the June rise, when the the Rocky Mountain snowpack is melting off at its maximum rate, the average was somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 cubic feet per second, so much higher. And I hesitate to say where that would be on my body if I was standing there because <laughs> I wouldn't be able to stand up in the river at that time. It would be dangerous to be in the river unless you're in a kayak or a raft or something like that. But so why does that matter? Well, the entire ecosystem evolved around that change in the flow regime. Low flows in the winter, but consistent flows, and a peak flow in the spring. And so, and when I say the ecosystem, I don't mean just the fish and aquatic insects and and invertebrates and other things in in the river, but I mean the cottonwood gallery forests that line the river, the willows, the birds that come in and use those that live in those uh, riparian forests those are organized carefully around the June rise. And so the June Rise creates a creates a seed bed, for example, for both willows and for cottonwoods that without that peak, that annual spring peak of with a certain amount of energy, you're not gonna get the scouring that creates a seedbed for those plants. And so if you don't have these variations, these annual variations in the flow regime, you could see th- this ecosystem gradually decline. And uh, that's a real problem, not just for the organisms that live along the river, but for humans who live there too, who depend upon that ecosystem. Because there's a lot of services that come from a healthy river, from a healthy ecosystem. Clean water, we also derive a lot of, there's a lot of other values like recreation that come from that. Some people derive spiritual values from the river. It's just keeping it as healthy as possible is best for everybody.
2: I would certainly agree on that point. I know I like to go do some kayaking or paddleboarding once in a while. <laughs> Excellent. Definitely a good time. Can you tell us what exactly is your role in the organization or what is your position with Save the Pooter?
1: So I'm one of the co-founders along with three other people, Gary Walkner, John Barthelow, and Greg Spear. Actually four other people and Gina Jeanette. I'm currently serving as the chair of the board of Save the Pooter.
2: And were you a part of Swig as well, or I just was, Save the Pooter? I was part of <laughs> what Swig. What prompted the name change? I like Swig. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Swig is good, but we decided we needed to form, in order to be effective, we needed to form a nonprofit, a mm-hmm. 501c3 organization that could be as effective as possible in fighting NISP. So we formed the 501c3 Save the Pooter and started to engage in public action around policy.
2: And what is the mission of Save the Pooter or what is the, what are the outcomes this organization is looking for?
1: So the mission is to protect and restore the Kachla River. The outcome that we're trying to achieve is pretty carefully focused around NISP and then other water projects that are being proposed for the river as well, but we're focusing on NISP for the time being because it's the greatest threat. So we're trying to prevent the NISP project from being permitted and then ultimately being built.
0: So, in your opinion, what are some of the pros and the cons of NISP?
1: Well, I don't think it's really my role to think so much about the pros. I need to <laughs> I need to pay attention to them and understand them, but I'm not going to advocate for the project. The cons for the project, I think are pretty clear. I said at the beginning here that we don't feel that the proponents are doing enough to prevent needing a water project like this. They, the, the water use rates that the communities who want to build NISP have are some of the highest in the Front Range, and they're predicting their water use rates on a per capita basis to climb for the next several decades before they level off. Um, and that runs exactly counter to what every other trend that we see happening along the Front Range. Range, We don't feel like they're paying enough attention to water conservation and also looking at other water water uses. So that's one example. Other problems with the project. The Poudre River is already extremely altered. I said at the beginning, over 60% of the water that comes down the river is already diverted before it gets to Fort Collins, and even more gets diverted as it runs out the front range. The river's hydrology is extremely altered. Its flow regime is very different from what it was historically, and as, as a result, we're seeing big problems with water quality. The river is altered to the extent that it's there are a number of pollutants that are of concern to the state of Colorado and which are highlighted under the, clean, the Federal Clean Water Act as being pollutants of concern. Nitrates, ammonia, and also selenium. And these pollutants, if the What we're concerned about is if the project is built, that water pollution problem is going to become even worse. That's going to cause problems for for people who are already using water coming out of the Cache-Laputa River. So the city of Fort Collins, for example, is very concerned that if the project is built, that... They are going to have to do even more to treat the water that they use from the pooter, and also that they would have to do even more to treat the the sewage and the uh, stormwater that goes into the river from the city of Fort Collins. And so that could potentially cost them a lot of money, to the tune of more than a hundred million dollars. So, and they're not the only ones who are concerned about this. The city of Greeley, the Box Elder uh, Water Sanitation District, and others have expressed similar sorts of concerns. So, but I think. When we think about rivers and ecosystems, we oftentimes couch those directly in terms of what their benefit is to humans, to the city of Fort Collins or to Larimer County or to the state of Colorado. And I think that's important. I think it's a good thing to look at it in those terms because when we look at the values that come from them, we can quantify very in very explicit terms what the services are that healthy ecosystems provide. But I think it's also really important to acknowledge that we don't know everything there is to know about these systems. Ecosystems are really complex, and we sort of joke about this at work. You know, ecology is not rocket science. It's way more complicated than that. <laughs> if to, to the extent that we're altering these systems that we don't really know that much about, that we don't completely understand, there's a piper to be paid somewhere down the road that we don't understand what that, the price of that is actually going to be. So we've got to be very careful about that.
2: So Mark, are, are you a Fort Collins native, or how long have you been in the area?
1: Well, my family goes back in Colorado on the Front Range four generations, wow. and so I moved here in 1994. I skipped a generation, or my family did, I should say, but I mm-hmm. call myself sort of a returning son.
2: <laughs> okay. So, you you certainly seen, as I'm sure Nicole and I have as well, over just over the last few years even, that the Vort Collins population, as well as as surrounding areas, is certainly growing. And we're definitely going to need more water in the future. I noticed, looking at the SaveThePooter.org website, that there is a page on healthy alternatives. And I was curious if you could talk with us a little bit more about what those healthy alternatives are and what you propose that we should do instead of implementing NISP.
1: Absolutely. So there's a number of good alternatives to NISP and I'll just try to run through them briefly here. Probably one of the most important things that we could do is communities and municipal water districts could start partnering with agriculture. So communities are using about 15 to 20% of the water that comes off of Front Range Rivers, and that's going to the water that runs out our taps and water that's used in manufacturing and other sorts of industrial things. That remaining 75 to 80% of the water is used by agriculture to grow crops in the region here so they are by far the largest user of water. Now if these communities and agriculture can get together and partner, essentially water bank for each other, there's opportunities here to avoid having to build new water projects. And what that means explicitly is in good years, the communities will devote more of their water supply to agricultural needs. And in dry years, farmers, could devote more of their water supply to the municipal uses, obviously with some kind of a financial arrangement going back and forth so that people are made whole in the process. So that's one example. A second example is conservation and basically reducing the need for new water projects. And there's a lot of good examples for that. There's good equipment alternatives, so water-saving toilets, water-saving shower heads and faucet heads, a lot of other technology that's out there that can help with reducing the amount of water that's used in individual homes. But for individuals who live in Fort Collins and environs, one of the best things you could probably do is not grow a bluegrass lawn, and not irrigate your <laughs> no lawn. No
2: joke, people, no joke.
1: So it's, it, they, they just use, they require a tremendous amount of water and there's good alternatives to it. So over half of the water that we use in Fort Collins and communities up and down the Front Range just goes to landscaping our lawns.
0: So I guess following up with that, as a renter, and I know there's a lot of other people out there who rent and or else own their homes, oftentimes there are statutes that say how short the grass needs to be mm-hmm. or what type of grass they can grow. Do you have any suggestions on how to push back against that a little?
1: That's a really great point. And so you're talking about like homeowner association covenants and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a big deal. So there's another example related to sustainability involving solar energy. Covenants in Colorado, homeowners' covenants used to be able to rule out people installing solar panels on their roofs. And that was, you know, that's a real problem because solar panels are something that. You know, I'd argue they should be on most roofs in Fort Collins and up and down the Front Range.
0: Save you some money? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Save us all money and reduce the need for burning coal and natural gas and other fossil fuels. The, The same sorts of sustainability issues, I think, apply to water. From my standpoint, I don't think a I can understand why an HOA might want to have some restrictions around, you know, or some standards for landscaping to just keep things looking good. But at the same time, I don't think communities should require that somebody grow a bluegrass lawn and and irrigate it to a fixed amount. You're basically requiring somebody, somebody to use resources in, I think, an inherently wasteful way.
2: And could you tell us, I know I've heard in the past, what are some of the... Better grass types that are more, maybe more native to the region that can sustain drier
0: weather, or some xenoscaping ideas. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so xeriscaping ideas. So the CSU Extension program has some excellent suggestions around this. They extension. <laughs> <laughs> they've done some great work, and so I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, a native grass to the region here is buffalo grass, and that makes an excellent lawn. So does blue grama. There are some dry fescue varieties out there that are good alternatives, but I'd recommend you go to CSU Extension and talk with them about that. Go to their website.
2: I would advise that as well, being an Extension student. And for our (laughs) listeners, if you don't know the website, it's just extension.colostate.edu. Lots of great information on this topic and then some. So
0: as an individual who's trying to do as much as they can, what should you do when you think when you financially cannot do any more to, say, install new toilets or change their landscaping. What other ways do you think somebody can participate in lowering our water consumption? Yeah,
2: particularly, I would say, you know, people who are financially constrained, such as college students as ourselves. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's a great point. I think the best thing that people can do is use as little as possible uses little of the resource. It's just like turning off the lights when you leave a room. Don't leave the water running. When you take a shower, you don't have to sprint through the shower, but you can use a low flow shower head and just be cognizant. So what I do in the morning when I shower, I get in, I wet myself down, I shut off, I have a little valve on the shower head, so I shut it off, and then I shampoo, and then I rinse, and then I soap myself up, and then I rinse, and back and forth like that. And you can cut your water use, it's extraordinary. I actually went to the trouble of measuring what the difference was when I changed techniques like that. You know, I cut the amount of water I was using by three quarters. It was amazing. Now, you might want to run the water a little bit morning or a little (laughs) bit longer on a cold winter morning. I understand that, Um, but there's still a number of things you can do if you're just mindful about, you know, what the use is.
0: Now, does that usually translate to a change in utility bills as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. You save money in the long run. and But I think, you know, so there are limits to what we can do individually in terms of how much we can use on a daily basis, and also the types of technology we might be able to change. If we're a renter, we're not going to come in and change the toilet, you know, that sort of thing. You could, as a renter, install your own low-flow showerhead and low-flow faucet and obviously change how you use your water. But the other thing that you can do is you can become uh, politically involved in these sorts of things. You can speak out, contact your city council persons, and advocate for water conservation, for uh, protecting uh, important ecosystems like the Poudre River.
0: Do you think there's a way to resolve the conflicts surrounding NISP?
1: Is there a way to resolve the conflicts surrounding NISP? So the way water conflicts in Colorado and throughout the American West are resolved is in the courts. The water law and the use of water and conflicts between water users, there's a highly structured and well-described method that people go through in order to either apply to use water or to register a complaint about how their neighbors might be using water in a way that affects them. And so ultimately, I don't think there's any way to keep the conflict around NISP out of the courts. If the project is not approved by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or there's a permit restriction that's put upon it that the project proponents led by the Northern Colorado Water Conservancy District, don't like, then I, I couldn't imagine them not taking the Corps of Engineers to court. They will sue. If the community sees unacceptable impacts to the river coming forward from the permit conditions, then the community is likely to sue. And if groups like Save the Pooder, and there's several others that we work with very closely on this, If any one of them sees something coming forward that they see is going to harm the river in the long term, or that the project proponents are not doing enough to try and protect the river, then they will sue. So ultimately, the court system is the arbiter around water conflict in Colorado.
2: That's that's a thinker. (laughs) So Mark, can you tell our listeners where they can find more information about Save the Pooder and how they can join this organization if they do wish to get involved?
1: You bet. So if you go to savethepoodre.org, that's S-A-V-E-T-H-E-P-O-U-D-R-E dot O-R-G, you'll find all kinds of detail about the NIST project, about other projects that are being proposed to divert water from the river, and also you have an opportunity there to join our effort, either to volunteer for us or to donate some of your resources, donate some money, or both.
0: And is there anything else that you want to tell our audience?
1: Yeah, I'd say there's only one Poudre River anywhere in the world. It's extremely unique. The geology, the ecology of this system, it's very different from all the other front-range rivers draining off the Rocky Mountain Front here in Colorado. And its it's an incredible resource. It's an incredible system. It's an incredible place, an incredible feature. And I'd say... Do what you can to help protect it, because once it's gone, it's gone.
0: Well, thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you again, Mark, for coming in and talking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Everyone, be sure to keep listening. In the next episode, we'll be talking with Brian Werner from Northern Water.
0: This has been Rita. And Nicole, bringing you knowledge straight from the tap. Bye. Bye.